There are some plants that when they droop, they'll then defoliate. Don't pick one of those. But if you pick a plant that can bounce back pretty reliably, that's a good way to kind of learn what that soil moisture content should be for it. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, today, I am joined by Plant Daddy, which sounds like one person, but it's not. It's actually two people. It's Matthew and Stephen uh, from Seattle. Um, they're avid houseplant growers, um, and they've got their own podcast called Plant Daddy, and that's why they're joining us today. We had a, a really, really good discussion about all things houseplant and how they got into it. And one thing I really, really like about it is that I often come across loads and loads of people who want to get into horticulture, um, whether it be professionally or make a living or a bit of a sideline. They, they want to make a little bit of money out of a hobby they absolutely love. And these guys are a great example of how you could possibly get into it. And I'm all for people just, just giving it a go. You'd be amazed how many people out there want to learn about plants and want to get into into growing plants and and if that's something you can share you should definitely do it jump on instagram start taking photos or something like that it is possibly one of the most common thing i'm asked about how to get into horticulture because if you look at a nursery like ourselves we've got an acre of greenhouses that's not cheap um, i'm lucky enough to in, inherited that from uh, first my nan and granddad set up the nursery then my my dad got into it and um, it went from there really so not everyone's as lucky as me um, being able to have this kind of setup but most people do have a garden um, and lots and lots of people do have uh, a living room um, and you can start recording something, you could start taking pictures um, and really start getting into this world of horticulture and at the very least what I think you'll find is that there's a fantastic community out there, everyone's really friendly, uh, you'll learn a lot, you'll have a lot of fun and if you don't end up making uh, any money out of it and you don't end up becoming the sideline you you wanted it to be at least you get to have fun growing growing the plants and and enjoying the hobby you really really love and um these guys over in seattle are are a great example of that um they obviously love their their plants and they're very knowledgeable about it um so yeah a really really good podcast definitely one worth listening to so without further ado let's start the podcast hi you're listening to plants and me the podcast that is all about plants, gardening, and the people who are passionate about them, with your host, Alan Lodge. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew and Stephen from Plant Daddy. Hello. Hey. Nice of you to join us. Now, tell everyone where you're joining us from. We are in Seattle, Washington, which for those of you who don't love u.s geography it's kind of the northwest corner mm -hmm. excellent we were talking just before we hit record uh, and we're going to a little bit about the climate you have there but uh just so everyone can hear uh which one's matthew and which one's Stephen? so i'm Stephen, and i'm matthew brilliant so tell everyone a little bit about what you do and um, why we're talking to you so um, we are doing a basically a houseplant oriented podcast, but um, really including all plants. And we uh, we were having a conversations between ourselves for a while, maybe a year or two, and then amongst our friends. And we thought we would 
try to just start recording some of these conversations and sharing these uh, these conversations we were having. Um, we were having them with a lot of our LGBT friends. We were thinking, oh, you know, we would we would have a, a podcast kind of involving you know plant issues and you know maybe some LGBT issues. And uh, as that's grown, it's kind of broadened, and we you know the conversation is kind of getting larger and larger, and the groups are so kind of where we started. Yeah. And one of the things that's been really cool has been just seeing houseplants as a hobby become so mainstream. And since this is something that I've been doing for basically my whole life, and Steven's kind of entered in the last like half decade, decade or so, we've found so many other people who have all various like interests and entry points into the hobby. So we just want to celebrate all of that. Mm-hmm, definitely and um, I've noticed um, from being in the industry all of my life and uh, my grandparents um, starting our nursery I've known this massive rise in in houseplants definitely but Matthew you mentioned you've been doing it virtually all your life so where did that start? Well when I was a child I I was just really attracted to like flowers and plants and all that. One of my earliest uh, introductions was my grandmother's neighbor. And she had this amazing garden that had rhododendrons and azaleas and peonies, uh, like really just a fantastic cutting flower uh, border gardens, basically. And I'd go over and we'd pick bouquets together. She'd tell me about the plants and then I'd bring the bouquet home for my grandmother. And so Maxine was her name. She was the first one who introduced me to like the Asiatic poppies that, you know, when I was a five-year-old, the flowers were as big as my head. And uh, (laughs) I just loved watching the ants crawl in the peonies. Then as I grew older, uh, both of my grandmothers liked to garden and do kind of the annual beds or stuff like that. So I just had so many people in my family who were encouraging me to pursue that interest. And I had flower pots of wax begonias or sweet peas growing on my grandmother's windowsill. And I would take cuttings of things from the plants that my aunt was growing. So it was always just this kind of like scientific interest in something that was just really inherently beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. And was uh, is it a similar sort of story with you, Stephen? Uh, mine's a bit different. So um, it started probably five years ago or so now with uh, uh, it's a Saracenia purpurea, um, which I think is pretty common in the, in the UK as well. Kind of that squat pitcher plant um, that's hardy outdoors. I left one on my balcony, and actually Matthew helped me pick it out um, at a store, uh, and just kind of on a whim, I'm like, oh, you know, I'll try a plant again. I think before then, I hadn't really cared about plants, or I just sort of picked a couple up at IKEA, and I would have them, you know, until they died, right? <laughs> so, um, but that purpurea, I put it out in my balcony, and it did so well, um, and I think I was so pleased by that that it made me kind of interested in the next step, like, oh, how. How would I treat this better? Like, would it need another pot? Uh, is this soil correct? And just in doing that research and then having so much success with that kind of at each stage. And I think that, uh, you know, that in reinforcement is kind of important, right? In those early stages like that, uh, that sort of positive feeling, right? If you're, if you're being successful in those next steps, that got me started. And, and then uh, really a good, I would say a good network of different um, specialty shops in Seattle. Um, you know, people there helped me, maybe gave me little freebies or gave me, you know, advice on what to do and kind of took extra time to to help me and get me into it. And then I was uh, pretty thoroughly hooked, I would say a year or two in. Mm. 
And these days, um, actually, when it comes to researching plants and things like that, the internet's a fantastic place. Um, you're very active on Instagram with some beautiful pictures um, on your Instagram profile and things like that. But we're talking before all of that became available. So how did you find all the information? Was it these specialty plant shops or did you get read books? How did you go about it? You know, I would say even before um, Instagram, maybe in the last couple of years, at least for us, um, I think there were already blogs that were helpful. I started with carnivorous plants. And I think, you know, sometimes if you start with a particular plant that has a strong community like that, there is an online library run by the International Carnivorous Plant Society. They have very focused articles that I could always refer to about you know, advanced topics about these, uh, the different, you know, uh, like genera of the carnivorous plants I was looking for. So I think that, you know, that's kind of a, a miniature example where that was maybe a bit ahead of its time. Uh, Matthew probably has a different answer for this because he started, um, you know, earlier as a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it basically started with reading the various gardening books, or even like 70s kind of craft hobbyist books, like that DIY trend that was so big in the 70s, most of those books had sections on houseplants. So my parents and my family had those just kind of like lying around on bookcases. And so I would just kind of pour through them occasionally. And there was one in particular that my parents had that was the first place that I heard about the aglonema, the Chinese evergreen or cast iron plant, aspidistra. Uh, it's also where I got my first introduction to a lot of the fig species that were kind of other than ficus benjamina, the weeping fig. So it really got me inspired to seek out some of these unique plants that I hadn't come across in real life, but was then reading about. Then later on, I started using some of the more botanical encyclopedias that my grandmother had, where I could look up families of plants and genera. And it was frankly pretty out of date by the time that I was reading it because the way the taxonomy goes, everything is constantly being regrouped. But it gave me a really good starting point. And that kind of led into kind of those like early internet years. I was mainly just checking things out from the library. And so I spent a lot of time if I developed some interest in like orchids were one of my early ones. I would go and I would just check out any book that I could find that was a good reference on orchids, whether it was their cultural care or more of the environmental like background of how they grow in the wild. So that transitioned over time, though, because as I was finding that some of these were becoming more out of date, and like I was telling Jane Perrone, like they were treating plants like anthuriums as though they were these extremely precious, tender, hothouse plants. So I found that the instructions were kind of out of step with some of the modern conventional approaches. So I turned to later on, um, there's a couple of online blogs that I really love, like Dave's Garden or Plants Are the Strangest People. And these were really fantastic ways to get kind of like on the ground data and information from people who are actually growing things uh, kind of currently and that you could hear what they were trying, what was working, what wasn't working. And it opened the door to me to kind of see that plants are very adaptable and there are so many things that a plant can and will tolerate and even thrive when it experiences and that this is so much more uh, 
I guess just flexible and malleable than conventional uh, kind of cut and dry details that I was reading in some of those earlier books. So it really gave me the opportunity to be an experimenting and trying things that was more based on the knowledge I was building rather than like the specific instructions I was coming across. Mm, yeah, definitely. And actually, I find that um, very much uh, the case in as much as I can watch um, TV programs that maybe are, we're a herb and chili specialist uh, in the UK. So I find I can watch TV programs. And actually, what they do isn't how we've been growing herbs for the last 60 years. Um, and and it works very well for us. Um, so it's interesting how horticulture can get very much set in its way about how it goes about something. Well, and something that I was really enjoying watching on, I believe it was Netflix recently, was a gardening show. It's like a competition, not really a competition, but Monty Don was the guest uh, or, or, or was the host of it, I guess. And he was going around helping just regular people with their regular garden spaces transform them. And I learned so many things just kind of watching the considerations that people were putting in and that Monty was kind of suggesting and promoting. It was really fantastic. Yeah, and Matthew and I have not discussed this, but um, I watched, I've watched the same show. It's great. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about this when we're done recording. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I, am I right in thinking that this uh, is just a hobby for both of you? You haven't gone into this professionally? Yeah, that's exactly the case. I have considered like pursuing a career in uh, botany or horticulture adjacent. Uh, but ultimately, I really enjoy having this be the thing that I come home to. I actually work in medical research. So like, it's a very different world. It's very rewarding in its own right. But I, I have a bunch of interests that I really love pursuing just as like a fun interest that has nothing to do with my professional life. But I wouldn't rule that out. No, exactly. And actually, I find uh, when I talk to people who are exactly answer that in 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 the same way i find i then speak to them or, or see them in two years time and all of a sudden they're, they're professional landscape gardeners or florists or something like that yeah come back in a year and see where we're going yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and for me i'm from um a tech background so i just see you know such an explosion of interest i mean like you've you know acknowledged on your show and today um, that it, it makes you think about the different opportunities there, you know, there might be in this, you know, come one year or five years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we've been surprised by the traction that, you know, our little show has gotten as well. So I think, it, yeah, it definitely speaks to some, you know, some opportunities like that out there, which is great. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, I've certainly grown up in a, in a time where very few people have wanted to get into horticulture in the UK, but those that have have found it very, very hard to do. And things like podcasts, blogs, um, YouTube channels, Instagram feeds and stuff like that have allowed people to dabble with it and in some cases earn a living from it. So it's it's worked really, really well for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Instagram is a fantastic source for just getting in touch with people who are growing what you're growing and asking them like, hey, how are you getting your Stefani erected to look so bushy when the rest of us have like these lanky plants? It's it's a really fantastic resource for people. It's so pretty too. People love it. Yeah, it is, it's very, very photogenic um, as, a, as a topic without a doubt. So when it comes to, before we get onto specific plants and things like that, I'd be interested to know your your tips and, and things for 
people new to houseplants. I'd be interested in your your take as to why do you think so many people have all of a sudden decided they want to plant in the corner of their room? Well, I think that it really has to do with uh, like a few factors. One of them, we're, we're talking with a lot of kind of Gen X, millennial people, as well as like boomers and older individuals who have different backgrounds to this. So some of our older uh, listeners that we've been interacting with were really into the houseplant trend in the 70s or 80s, and then for whatever reason fell out of it. But now they're being reintroduced into it. And I I don't know what's bringing them back necessarily, but I'm very happy that they're there. And something that I've consistently heard from uh, some of these listeners is that they're amazed at the availability of new plants and that that might be a draw to them where it's suddenly more choices on the market and now there's this renewed interest in them. I think that for younger people, though, especially those living in urban environments where you know, apartment living is the norm and green spaces are becoming fewer and far between. I think that it's kind of this this craving to get back to nature. And kind of in a little bit of gallows humor, uh, the way that climate change is going, I always tell my fiance when he's complaining about the number of plants that we have in our apartment, like, no, we're like one of the last generations who will be able to appreciate all of this stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's a bit of a joke, but it's also like, not as much of a joke as I wish it was, because there are so many absolutely spectacular and and precious plants on this planet that give another hundred years might not be in existence anymore in their wild ecosystems. So being able to have these plants indoors and appreciate them, to me, it's like almost this kind of spiritual connection to the natural world where I get to chaperone and be the caretaker for these really special living things. Um, I think that if you are approaching it from a less kind of holistic encompassing place than I am, I think that there's nothing lovelier to add to a room to bring some life and freshness into it than the right house plants. And I think that so many people are responding to the the interest in design and interiors that we're seeing on social media by trying to replicate that in their own homes. And they're trying to kind of bring some of that inspiration to their own spaces. And it's extremely approachable to just get yourself like a snake plant and put it in a corner and it just pulls everything together for you. So I think it satisfies all these human needs that we just are not getting in this modern time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually, if you go over Instagram, if you can find a uh, an interior design picture without a monstera in the background, you're doing <laughs> well. Well, and I was actually listening to an interview, um, I believe it was on Bloom and Grow Radio, a New York-based plant podcast, and the person she had on was talking about how she started with interiors as her primary focus for the Instagram account, but there was this sharp difference in the amount of engagement that she was getting on posts just whether or not there was a plant in it. It didn't have to be about the plant, but if there was like a really beautifully staged uh, side table or something, uh, she'd get some number of likes. But then if she just put like a spider plant on it, she would double that. So it's definitely something that catches your attention, even if you're not deliberately scrolling through your feed, trying to like the photos where you find plants. Uh, I think that it just kind of like triggers this little thing in most people's minds of like, oh, this is really inviting. This is this is what I want to uh, have my own space look like. 
Mm. And actually, Stephen, uh, you mentioned you're you're really into carnivorous plants. Now, I'd be intrigued to know: are you classing those as house plants? Um, yeah, so many of them um, you can keep indoors uh, really easily and kind of forever. I mean, some need that seasonality where you would want to put them outdoors or somehow, uh, you know, prompt the dormancy. But yeah, most of mine are inside. Oh, interesting. So that brings me to we spoke a little bit about before we hit record. I wasn't particularly familiar with the climate um, you've got in your area. So before we get on to maybe some some tips on some house plants to go for, what what is the weather like in your area? Uh, so it's pretty. Um, it's it's basically like a Mediterranean kind of temperate climate. Maybe uh, Matthew can jump in with specifics here. But essentially, we don't freeze very often. We'll maybe get a snow once or twice a year, but we don't get particularly hot either. I think it's pretty similar to uh, much of the UK, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is true. There there are parts of the southern UK that have warmer winters than we do, but other than that, it is fairly. Uh, similar because we don't get very sweltering summers. We don't get very uh, cold winters. We do have a lot of water and a lot of um, just dry summers. So if we're looking for plants that like that uh, hot, humid period, we can struggle with them a bit because our humidity in the summer tends to be very low. And plants that like to have a, a dry cold winter may struggle because our winters are where we get all of our rain pretty much. So it's just about if you're growing things in an outdoor space, you really have to be thoughtful about how you're placing them. And indoors, the only concern that I really have in our climate is that I have to really work to keep the humidity up indoors for my tropicals. But other than that, we're pretty convenient in being able to grow a lot of plants that are kind of subtropical a lot of plants that do like that cold, but we have just enough of it to provide them. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I'll be interested to hear from both of you on this one. Give us a few tips, um, some house plants for maybe someone who has been looking over Instagram, was meant to go and pick one up from a, from a shop or, or, uh, or online or something like that. Uh, give us some tips what they should be looking for. I think that the number one thing is just identifying what sorts of conditions you have in your home. It's far easier to find a plant that will adapt to the space you already have than to try to adapt your space to suit the needs of a plant you've just randomly picked up and brought in and then realized that a maidenhair fern really needs constant moisture and humidity. So if you have a space that provides that, find that plant. I think that some of the most bulletproof plants that I recommend people towards all the time include the Sansevierias. I think that there are so many fantastic forms and structures and colors of them. I also always gravitate people towards some of the hanging vine type aeroids like uh, the Hartley philodendron is one of my favorites and the pothos has a bunch of uh, related species and genera that are fantastic. I think that it's really finding the plant that brings you joy that you're going to care for, but that isn't going to be a huge stretch for where you're trying to make it live. Yeah. And I think like you've touched on in your show as well, I think there's this, uh, you know, there's this great strength in not being afraid to lose a plant or two, right? I think if you can bring something into a space and just kind of see how it see how it fares, right? Like you can do a lot of research, but I think that first time it's just hard to know what all of your conditions are. You're not going to buy a humidity meter, right? Um, And you might not necessarily buy, 
a you know a grow light and you might not know what your east facing window actually you know does or or doesn't do so yeah i think you can start with um you know cheaper plants there you know that's one of the great things about this becoming so much more popular lately is i think there's such an abundance of you know maybe uh you know five dollar like succulents that you could just pick up and, and try um and like matthew was saying you know a lot of these uh a lot of tropicals that you could put and put in a low light place um, so I think that's a that's a big one too. But I think even if you start with something that you know you can look at the price of it, um, you can feel less bad about killing it. And you know I think sometimes, like we've mentioned in some of our episodes, that's kind of an indication of hardiness sometimes, right? I mean, if some, someone is you know producing something and selling it that cheaply, well, it's probably you know more resilient than like a, a two hundred dollar you know, exotic plant. So I think you can, you know, you can uh, get some indication from that as well. But yeah, you know, I think, you know, you'd found a, find a sunny place, um, you know, for many of these, uh, you know, not someplace that is right over a radiator or a heater, right? Uh, just someplace that seems reasonable. I think, um, you know, that'll be a good start for many of these. And then, yeah, get on the, get on the internet and uh, ask your friends who might be able to help. And you just have to kind of start that learning process. Uh, it may be a little bit bumpy, but it'll probably be a lot less bumpy than than you think. And something that Steven said earlier that I think is really important is it's great to have those early wins. Like if you pick up something, I'm just going to use a maiden hair fern as that example again. Like if you get one of those as your very first plant, watch it die real rapidly. You're probably not going to be that inclined to go pursue the hobby more. Like I've met so many people who bought one plant, killed it, and it was a cactus because they put it in a bathroom with no light. And so now they think that they have this black thumb and they'll never be able to grow plants. So something that I recommend to a lot of people who reach out asking like, hey, I'd love to pursue houseplants. How do I get started? I know that this is not the advice people want to hear. Don't go crazy at first. Just like Stephen was saying, kill some things. Because that's how you learn. I mean, for every one of the hundreds of plants that I have in my apartment, there might be like several hundred dead ones in my past because I hate killing plants. But that's also how I learn. Like if I find something really needs a certain care uh, that I can't recreate, I might try it a couple of times. Eventually, I might give up on a specific species, but I try not to let my failures ever hold me back from trying new things in the future. It's a carefully guarded plant daddy podcast secret, right? You're, you're dead plants, Matthew. So yeah, so many orchid <laughs> souls in my hands. <laughs> and I think it's, uh, it's, I mean, it sounds like a silly comment, but experience only comes with experience. And I can think back to when I first started on our, on our nursery and we had a, a new variety of plant come that we were, we were going to propagate up in order to sell at one point. I don't actually remember what plant it was, but I remember it arriving and my dad saying, Oh, that looks like it grows quick. And I stood there in amazement thinking, what on earth is he talking about? And you, so I'm looking at it at various different angles thinking, how can he tell it grows quick? Um, but actually, the reality is now I can I can do the same, but it only comes with experience. And for some reason in horticulture, a lot of people expect that experience to come overnight. Yeah, and it really does take a considerable amount of time to kind of figure those ins and outs. I think there's a lot of tips that I would give people that are sort of that next level of like, you know, pick the pot up to see if it's dry enough. And that's not something that you just inherently have as like a skill set if you're not doing that regularly to understand what that weight difference is when you're holding it in your hand. So I think that building those early 
uh, wins with the simple, easy plants helps you then identify like just looking at a plant at a nursery. Oh, this is going to be fast growing or this is going to be one that I can handle. Plants give you a lot of cues. You can tell a lot just by looking at them, but they don't really, you know, help you out with that. You have to make that that work yourself. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I'd be interested to hear from from both of you. The question I get asked a lot and it's a question I, I try and every time answer as best I can. And I don't like people to think there's ever a silly question and there really isn't. But some everyone always asks me, how often should I water this plant? And I think it's one of the hardest questions to, to answer uh, when you're growing a plant. Um, so how do you answer it? Well, it really depends on the plant itself. There are all kinds of water needs that different plants have. So if you're growing succulents, you're not going to treat them the same as you would a fern. So I think that research is the first key. But the typical like general way that I approach this is the majority of my tropical indoor house plants just like to dry a little bit between their watering. And I now, uh, there's a few different ways that conventional wisdom will tell you to approach this. You can poke your finger in the soil, see if it's dry and knuckle deep, whatever. Um, I, I mainly use visual cues. I take a look at the top of the soil. And by this point, I feel like I've been growing plants long enough that I can see the difference between just like that top couple of millimeters being dry versus like it's dry enough that I can tell that there's a couple of centimeters dry. So I will water based on that visual cue. For some of my smaller plants, especially ones that are in unglazed clay pots. I will indeed lift them because if you're growing like an orchid in sphagnum moss, there is a big difference between what that plant feels like when you pick it up when the sphagnum is completely moist versus when it's completely dry. I also, uh, one of my favorite approaches to kind of make my own life easier is that I use really expressive plants throughout my whole indoor uh, growing space so that if I happen to be overlooking a particular corner and I'm not really addressing it much, I'm just taking it in visually throughout the week as I go about my business. If suddenly the peace lily is like flopped down hard in the pot, that's the little sign to me like, oh, you've been neglecting that corner, you better go water. And so then that way, it saves all of the plants that needed that watering but weren't telling me. And I water my spathophyllum and she perks right back up and it's good. But I think that this is a very useful trick to identify plants, like learn these plants early, that'll give you those signs. There are some plants that when they droop, they'll then defoliate. Don't pick one of those. But if you pick a plant that can bounce back pretty reliably, that's a good way to kind of learn what that soil moisture content should be for it. And I think that Stephen has probably some different answers since he mainly grows plants that want to be either very wet all the time or they'll want like watering once a month and that's the very limit mm. yeah you know i would say that expressive plant that's kind of the trick that we've been telling many people right for um, indoor house plants like we are trying to grow um, phytonia or nerve plants right now and that's one that in particular will act you know very dramatically if it needs water but then you know once you once you give it the water it will perk right back up but i would say you know we covered this in one of our episodes kind of further back in our catalog but matthew you know I, we we kind of have different approaches here and i think it just speaks to you know yeah the the variety of different answers right that you hear and and you know the variety of different answers that works but like you said you know i have a lot of succulents and 
Mine, I really kind of approach um, as more of a schedule. Like I will uh, typically water on Mondays and you know, it's not exactly the same for all of these plants. And, you know, this excludes like carnivorous plants and some other things I have in my collection. But, you know, many people might start with succulents. And I think if you can just tell yourself to kind of always water on a Monday, then from there, that will kind of give you that basic baseline. And then you will, you know, you can kind of see, oh, well, this seems very, very dry, right? Maybe if I could increase the water a little bit, um, you know, you get that. And then it's always that you know, that I think common thing that said that, you know, so often we overwater, right? So I would, I would probably err on the side of underwatering. And, you know, if you can stick to that schedule where, where you're um, remembering to address it weekly or, or something, then um, that can give you that, that good place to adjust from. Hmm. Hmm. And would you agree with the, um, the comment that more people overwater than underwater, especially in the early days of, of getting into plants? Yeah, and I know that there are lots of plants that I've grown that particularly like to stay pretty moist, and I can be either a forgetful water or a heavy water. I'm not very good at finding that balance in the middle. <laughs> so one of the ways that I get around this myself is that I do a lot to change up and customize the soil mixes that I'm using or the substrate mixes because like the syngoniums, that should be a really easy houseplant for most people. I think that many people have a lot of luck with the arrowhead vine, but I always tend to rot the roots of them if they're planted in soil because they like to stay pretty moist. They are plants that grow in wet environments, but for whatever reason, the wet environment that I create in my home doesn't keep them happy. And if I let them dry, then they suffer that way. So what I will do I've been doing this with a lot of my aeroids. I have kind of made up this mix that I'm kind of calling like a jungle mix. And it's basically equal parts like a rich potting soil that has been augmented with like perlite and sand to keep the drainage high. But there's a lot of organic matter and compost in it for richness and moisture retention. But then I'll also add uh, a combination of fir bark chips and horticultural charcoal, maybe some pumice and sphagnum moss and even expanded clay pellets. And this really lightens the soil a lot. So it's very moisture retentive, but it also doesn't hold lots of water. Like it stays moist, but there's a lot of airiness to it. And this way I know if I water it really infrequently, it'll still hang on to some of that moisture. But if I'm watering it really heavily, then it's also going to remain airy. And I've had really good luck with, um, like, I'm, I'm, I'm growing uh, Monstera stiltipacana. Mm -hmm. And it was a cutting that somebody gave me potted in just regular garden soil. It wasn't doing much. It maybe put out two or three new leaves in the year that I've had it. So I recently unpotted it, planted it up with this kind of jungle mix. And I was shocked to find that it had very few roots, like it had not been thriving in the little pot that it started in. So I'm now keeping an eye on it, and it seems to be throwing out uh, quite a number of new roots already. And I think that's going to be kind of the key to success. What I've been doing with some of the plants that like to stay wet, but, I, uh, but, but often suffer that root rot, like the alocasia and the syngonium, I'm even just trying the semi-hydro technique where you use expanded clay pellets as your potting substrate. Because in a closed vessel... You can put a bunch of these pellets, put the plant so that kind of the 
the rhizome or the, the growing points are above where you'll keep that water level, but then they can grow the roots down however they want, access whatever amount of water that they want, because you'll keep a reservoir of a couple of inches in the bottom. And I have seen tremendous success with my alocasia growing that way. Similarly, other plants that like to stay on the dry side that I might tend to overwater, I'll use something that's very, very mineral so that it doesn't hold more water. So I'm really trying to make sure that the potting medium that I'm customizing for my plant is going to help give me some buffering from my own habits and inadequacies as a gardener myself. <laughs> and it is, um, it is without a doubt, I would have said the hardest thing both to explain and the hardest thing to get right is watering. And still to this day, there are three people who water on our nursery and it's myself, my dad and my mum. Um, and that's always been the case pretty much with very few exceptions for the last 70 years. Well, you don't know how well you can trust somebody else to do such a delicate process. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And um, we grow uh, a lot of mint as a herb. And you know when you you were saying about um, plants that really act dramatically, when you, your mint starts wilting, you've really got a problem. You've got to go and grab a, a hose yep. quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think another thing for beginners as well, just to kind of throw this in, you know, you can do yourself such a favor by having a pot that has drainage holes, right? I think as this is becoming more, you know, visual and, you know, in the home and everything, there are so many cash pots that um, look amazing, but I just find them a little bit harder to handle. Even if you have these, you know, bed of, uh, you know, stones in the bottom or something. And, you know, Matthew may disagree with me here, but I think if you are an overwaterer, I think that's uh, just such a big, you know, uh, leg up you can give yourself. Well, I will agree with him that this can be a, a great way to get rot pretty quickly. Like I, I had a, a blue star fern that was really beautiful. It got too dry and I thought, well, I need to be more regular with my watering. So I adjusted my watering. It was in its plastic nursery pot, but inside of a decorative cash pot. And I very quickly overwatered it to the point that there were a few inches of standing water in the bottom and all the foliage dropped off because the rhizomes had rotted. So like you have to be very thoughtful and careful when you're using this approach. But the way that I see cash pots is they're like saucers. They're like the saucers that you put underneath your regular plants to catch the extra water. If you're doing a good job of letting the plant get a little bit dry, if you're letting it wilt just a little bit to the point that the plant can bear it, it's in a cash pot. You dump that extra water in, being very careful to not use too much. And even if there is some sitting water in the bottom, something that I think houseplant people struggle with, if you have a plant that dries and you just give it a little sip, it's not really going to moisten the whole substrate. It's not going to get where the roots need it. So you need to saturate it and let the whole thing absorb that water in. Of course, you don't want there to be excess. So what I do is I will dump in an amount of water that I think is right, give it some time to soak up and rehydrate the whole root ball, like the whole dirt system where the roots are. And then if there's some excess water, depending on the plant, I might dump it out. Other plants I know aren't going to care too much, so I'll just leave it. But I think that it can be a very useful tool. It's not something that's going to be 100% bulletproof. But I definitely think that the key to watering any plant, uh, besides maybe some of the really particular succulents, is that when you water, you need to do it very thoroughly so that the plant is like fully hydrated and then can dry from that point. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I'd um, definitely second that without a doubt. Um, and uh, it is something that is only going to come really with practice and, and getting to know your plants. Yeah, absolutely. So some questions that I always ask people. Um, one, um, I don't know whether you've heard on uh, me mention on the podcast, I used to be fairly early on, I used to be a little bit nervous about asking this question to people, but as soon realised that actually it is so common and such a, an important part of getting into horticulture that I'm not afraid of asking it anymore. But when you first started out, or maybe even recently, do you remember any notable failures? Um, yeah, I can I can start with this one actually. <laughs> so um, it's kind of a running joke in uh, in our podcast that I love to repot things. Right? I'm always like, oh gosh, you know, I have a slightly better soil formula now, or I have uh, a really perfect pot for this that will actually be better for the plant because it's uh, it'll dry more quickly or something like you know something I'll tell myself. But I've definitely lost plants recently um, because I have repotted too often or too soon. Oh, I, you know, I'll repot a succulent and then I will overwater it. Um, some that were, you know, I should start really start from cuttings versus replanting. And so I would say that's one that people really should try to restrain yourself. Um, you know, when you are repotting something, I think you should maybe Google the species and just see, you know, what might be good for that. It, you know, especially if you're doing it like, you know, under a year maybe of, you know, time spent in that pot. But I think that's one I, I, I've definitely killed some that are considered uh, greenhouse weeds. Uh, and I've had to, you know, go back to the shop in embarrassment and ask for another plant. So, <laughs> And one of my uh, most like chronic failures tends to come around light. So I have like three uh, natural sources of light, a sliding glass door and a window in my living room, dining room, and then a window in my bedroom. And these are just a little bit north of east facing. So it's not ideal light. It's good for a lot of my plants, but I grow far more plants that I can cram into those spots. So I augmented it with a lot of uh, full spectrum lighting throughout the rest of my apartment. And there are some spots that are quite low light that are fine for like displaying plants. So what I try to do is kind of like rotate my selection of like where I'm putting things. I try to make sure that the spot that a plant lives in is going to be a good long-term solution. But like if there's an orchid blooming, I might want to put it somewhere special that it can be appreciated more. And I've noticed that every now and then I'll kind of get used to there being a plant in a certain area where it's not getting adequate light. And like I noticed this yesterday, I had this parlor palm. Um, I say had, I do still have it, but I don't know for how much longer. It was a really <laughs> beautiful, thick, bushy parlor palm. And I tucked it in this zone where it looked fantastic. And it was getting like amounts of light but not nearly adequate enough. And it's surrounded by enough other plants that I just, I was watering it like it needed and I was doing all of the other things, but I pulled it out uh, when I was doing some, some watering and pruning and whatever yesterday. And I noticed that it has really dropped a lot of fronds or <laughs> like, it, it's, it's just looking mangy. It has way too attoliated growth and that's a sign to me that I need to be much more thoughtful about some of these plants that fade into the background as decor, and I'm not treating them as living things that need that <laughs> that like actual environmental situation to be right. Hmm. 
Yeah, and with all these plants, you've both mentioned uh, several plants uh, around the house. Are you running out of space? Oh, absolutely. This is a constant problem. And I've actually reached this tipping point in like the last few weeks where it's always been kind of funny, like, haha, Matthew has so many plants, he's gonna run out of space. But now I'm like, actually there. I never thought that I would reach that point where it was <laughs> literally true. But I have two new Hoya arriving today. And a friend and I put in a shipment with a aeroid specialist in the United States. And I don't know where I'm going to put these plants. And I'm going to try to make it work. But it's probably going to mean that I need to get some more uh, full spectrum lighting and finding a way to kind of innocuously put it into my my space where it's not going to look like I'm running a grow up. <laughs> yeah. And it's always, uh, it's kind of this process, right? This slow process and we can be in denial the whole time, I think. Uh, so for me, I'm I'm now slowly moving the books off the bookshelf, right? I'm like, oh, well, I haven't really referred to this one in a while, right? I can move this to a bottom shelf or maybe under the shelf or into storage or something. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, the last time that I was over at Stephen's place to record, I was just looking around noticing like, Dude, you've got like 50% more plants now than when we started our podcast in July. And we laughed about that. But it's totally true for both of us that being involved in like a plant themed media endeavor has given us this like green light in our head to just go ahead and start that collecting at a ravenous pace. Also that we have the experience with plants to share with our listeners. And we're now even growing things that we ourselves don't like or wouldn't grow ourselves just <laughs> out of natural uh, selection. But we want to be able to talk about them and do them justice. And how are you going to do that if you haven't had a couple of months with like a polka dot plant or a phytonia? So I think what we just witnessed is Matthew trying to excuse himself just during an interview. Yeah, this is totally fine. It's a new low. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, though, I'm going to have to excuse myself in exactly the same way because I've ended up collecting all sorts of different bits and pieces that um, I really didn't think I'd be interested in. Oh, good. Yeah, it's just kind of the way that we approach plants across the hobby. Yeah, now we're connected, so we're going to have a lot of cuttings we're going to send you and, you know, you're going to feel guilted into accepting them, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and... Um, where do you see the Plant Daddy podcast going? Um, do you have plans for it in the future or do you just take it one episode at a time and, and still try and keep it a hobby? So, you know, I think both of us are thinking of it still as something that's very kind of passion driven, like we will choose an episode based on something we really like. I mean, what we just alluded to is kind of a, a first thing we're trying where we're like, oh, what's a plant that we are not necessarily attracted to that we're just going to try? And I think we try to be very open about, you know, our likes and dislikes, and that's not always received, you know, super well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I got a lot of response because I personally do not like variegated plants. This is not a reflection of anyone else's taste or their interest in variegated plants, but that's also the great like democratizing thing about houseplants is that there are so many choices that everyone can have their specific interest and niche uh, focus, and we don't all have to agree. It means that there's less competition for variegated plants if I'm not also buying them. <laughs> yeah. And I think for us, our goal, you know, at the outset was maybe like, oh, let's, you know, let's try to get some free plants, right? Like maybe some people will send us plants to review or maybe we'll uh, form some relationships with some local shops. And um, yeah, and I think now, now that we're meeting so many people, I mean, you know, like you, Alan, right? Like other people interested in, in talking to people around the world through social media and, and here, I... 
you know, I, I don't know if we, if we quite know the, you know, the ultimate course now, but it's, it's so fun. And, you know, we're working on this several days a week now, I think far more than both of us expected right at the, at the outset. And it's just one of those projects that doesn't, you know, it doesn't really feel like work. I mean, sometimes it does, right? But um, yeah, it's it's so it's been so satisfying. Yeah, one of the really great things is that Steve and I have been friends for nearly a decade by this point, and we had already like known each other for quite a while before Stephen got invested in Houseplants, and now it's like really become a focus of his life, and of course, it's been for mine. And I think that the really fun thing has been connecting into this really global community and just the houseplant community itself is one of the most inclusive and supportive groups of people that I've come across. And that's tremendously inspiring. So, I mean, I've kind of floated this idea at Steven, but ultimately I would be pretty happy if this podcast was successful enough that we could start writing books and doing like lectures and stuff and traveling around so that we're able to continue sharing this. If I got out of medical research and went into kind of planned media like full time, I would not complain. Yeah. So it brings it back to that, you know, one of your first questions, right? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Within a year, let's see where I am. I mean, I yeah, who knows? Like, uh, yeah, like he's saying, it's just uh, the interest is, you know, so surprising um, and, mm. and great. Yeah. And I could definitely see the way you both communicate um, and your your clear enthusiasm for it. I could definitely see it going from, from strength to strength. And I think that's a really good point to leave it and actually tell people where they can find out more about you, where they can find the podcast. Well, the the number one thing to do is to go wherever you enjoy your podcasts and just look for Plant Daddy Podcast. We just released our 26th episode on Monday. Uh, I don't know when people will be listening to this, but at least when I'm saying it, it's true. And it was about <laughs> Pinguicula, which are a really fantastic group of indoor uh, possible uh, carnivorous plants. I think of them as kind of like a stand-in for a lot of the Gisneriads because they have really beautiful little rosettes of interesting foliage and colorful flowers. This is a plant group that a lot of people don't know about, but I think that everybody should. So we try to cover a variety of topics that we both find interesting and that our listeners are going to find interesting. So check us out, iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Yeah, and um, and as far as social media, we're Plant Daddy Podcast uh, most places, um, Instagram, um, etc. And we are Plant Daddy Pod on Twitter. So um, yeah, two of our favorite social medias are Twitter and Instagram. Stephen is kind of in charge of our Twitter, and I'm kind of in charge of our Instagram. And both of us just have so much fun connecting with people who follow us and interact and send us questions. We're gonna start taking the questions and actually putting them into our blog because. Because we're getting them now at such a volume that there needs to be a better way to disseminate the information that we're sharing. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for for joining us. We'll make sure we put all of those links in the show notes so people can check you out. And um, I've got a funny suspicion many people will be um, without a doubt. So thank you for joining us. Um, and I look forward to perhaps having a conversation in a year when you've um, when you can sign a book for me. <laughs> all right, will do. Thank you so much, Alan. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. See ya. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Plants and Me podcast. We'll be back soon. 
If you can't get enough of all things plant-related, pop over to plants-uk.co.uk. And if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.